tonight, I want to do somewhat of an introduction to the book of Ruth uh, because you may not know what the book is about, or even if you've been in church for a while, maybe you have read the book of Ruth, maybe you've heard a sermon series on the book of Ruth, but you're honestly just really not sure what the book of Ruth actually has to say for you, how it applies to your life, why it fits in the Bible, um, how it does, where it does, and all of those things. So if I had to give the book of Ruth like a main idea, one kind of big thing that it's teaching us, it's this, that God's hand, though at times hard to see, his hand is working all things for our good and for his purposes. But as we know, this is not an always this is not always an easy truth in the midst of despair, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of struggle, in the midst of loss, in the midst of hurt, in the midst of pain. But what the book of Ruth is reminding us over and over and over again is that God's hand, though invisible to us, is working all things according to his purposes and for the good of those who trust in him. And so Ruth teaches us that God is active in the most ordinary and mundane moments of his children's lives. He is at work in the details, even though we can't see his hand guiding us along the way. That's a really hard and difficult thing to grasp. It's one thing to be in a really good place, in a really happy place, and be like, yeah, we know that God is in control of everything. He's good. He has good things for me. But when you find yourself in a moment of suffering or despair, it is really difficult to claim that God, yes, even now in the midst of my suffering, is in control, and he has good things for me, even through this. That's difficult, but that's the story of Ruth. So I'm going to read the first five verses, and then I'm just going to kind of catch you up to what is happening, the context that's happening here. Because actually, if you want to understand the four chapters of the book of Ruth, really you can sum it up in basically the... So every good story, you do realize that every good story uh, has some sort of crisis and then some sort of resolution to that crisis, right? Any good book you've ever read, there's a moment where you're reading and you're like, (gasps) and then there's a moment when you're like, Oh, right? That's what makes a good story. So whenever your English teacher asks you, uh, what makes a good story? You need to say, and then follow it up with, huh? (laughs) And then drop the mic and walk out. That's all you need to do. And then when they're like, how dare you? You need to say, talk to my youth pastor. So anyways, there, there, there are really two crises that are happening in the book that I want us to kind of see before next Sunday we start digging into the actual text. I want us to understand the story. I want us to understand the plot or the outline. And so uh, starting in verse one, it says, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the name of their two sons were Malon and Chilon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two sons, they took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah. When you guys get older and start having children, don't name your daughter Orpah. If you have a great-great-grandmother named Orpah, she was a dear lady with a horrible name. Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. 
They lived there about 10 years in Moab, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the woman, the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, so what's the context of what's happening? Obviously, we have uh, essentially here starting off this main character, Naomi. Now, Naomi and her husband and her two sons, like it says, they live in Bethlehem. Well, verse 1 tells us a lot of information. So verse 1 actually reveals the larger crisis of this story. And it's really important to understand that this is happening during the days of the judges. Now, do you, you're like, well, what's that? Well, look one book behind Ruth. There's a whole book called Judges. Now, Judges is a book that tells us of all of these different rulers or judges over the people of Israel. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. The judges were not always awesome. And actually, more often than not, they led the people into sin and rebellion against God. And so you have this crazy kind of bipolar pattern of Israel having a good judge and serving the God and then a bad judge and serving all of these made-up, make-believe gods out of stone and wood and hay. But they just had this pattern of obeying and disobeying. Well, here, when we enter into the book of Ruth, they have a bad judge. And so God, from the very beginning, but in particular in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he basically tells the people of Israel, if you disobey me and my commands, I will punish you. And one of the ways that God typically would punish his people to turn them back to worship him was through famine, right? Now, famine is simply the lack of food or things that you need to survive. Well, that's what's happening here. And so Elimelech, being, I think, a good husband and trying to care for his family, but not a great worshiper of the Lord, says, okay, instead of saying here in Bethlehem, we're going to go to another country, Moab, where it doesn't seem like they have famine. And we can go there, I can provide for my family, and this is all good. The problem is, Moab is a foreign country with foreign gods. And so essentially, Elimelech is taking his people out of the place where they would actually serve God and taking them and putting them in a place where they serve all kinds of people. And so in reality, he's putting his family in danger in terms of their spiritual life. But they have food. What ends up happening, though, the larger crisis, is instead of obeying God and buckling down and staying in Bethlehem, and all of the people returning their worship to the one true and living God, everybody starts to do what is right in their own eyes. Look at the very last book of, or the very last verse of the book of Judges. Verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so in the eyes of Elimelech, he takes his family to Moab. Now, Here's the immediate crisis. Elimelech takes his family there. Maybe there's food, maybe there isn't. I don't know, the story doesn't tell us. But he leaves the promised land to find food, and all of a sudden, crisis strikes the family in a new way. It's not just that they don't have food. The new crisis is brought to them in the form of death of their patriarch. 
the man takes his family to this foreign land, and the next thing you know, he's dead. And so the new crisis that is happening is Naomi. She feels empty because she's just lost her husband, and she's in a foreign land, and now she feels like God is completely indifferent to her and her struggles. She's in this land, her husband is dead, and she's essentially thinking, how could God do this to us? How could he let us come here and then kill my husband? And so Naomi does the only thing that she thinks she can do. She says, I, I'm not going to stay here in Moab anymore. I'm going to return to Bethlehem. And so that's what Naomi does. She decides to, to take her stuff and go back to Bethlehem. And she actually tells her daughters, Orpah and Ruth, you need to go back to your mother's house. I have nothing for you. My husband has died. Your husbands have died. The Lord has completely forsaken us. I have no, I have no other sons for you. You're never going to be able to stay with me and have children. You are doomed if you stay with me. Go back to your mother's house, find a good husband, have some babies, and move on. The Lord has totally forsaken me. You don't want to be around me. You don't want to be with me. I have been cursed. This lady has lost everything. Everything in her life that she has, she's lost. I mean, think about it for just a moment. Like, really think about it. This lady, her entire family was her husband and her two sons. And yeah, daughters-in-laws and sons-in-laws, they're awesome sometimes, um, a large majority of the time, but, but they're not like your blood children. Right, And so she's, she's there and she's thinking, I have nothing left. I, I have nothing. It would essentially be like you losing every single one of your family members to death. I mean, she totally feels completely empty. But in the midst of this crisis, in the midst of being in Moab and losing her husband and losing her sons and making her way very sorrowful and broken back to Bethlehem, the story shifts away from Elimelech, it shifts away from Naomi, and it begins to shift towards this lady named Ruth. And here's the thing for Ruth. So a little bit of, of, of cultural background for you. If Ruth goes with Naomi to Bethlehem, everyone in Bethlehem is going to look down on Naomi because she's a Moabite. The Moabite people actually come from the lineage of Lot. Do you all remember that moment where um, Lot is coming out of Sodom and his wife turns around and she looks and turns into a pillar of sea salt or just salt? I don't know, maybe sea salt. But she turns into a pillar of salt. Are you remember that? Nobody, just me. I'm the only one. Okay, there's a couple. Someone even raised their hand. Two, three people raised their hand. Look at us. Four, uh, five. Look at us. <laughs> So Lot is coming out because the Lord is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, right? They are, they are degenerates. They are doing all kinds of awful stuff. And so Abraham says, hey, uh, Lot is there. Would you please send some people in to save him before you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And he says, yes. And so they're coming out. Don't turn around. She turns around, turns into a pillar of salt. Everyone's sad. <clears throat> well, Lot's daughters actually, not to be too graphic, but they get him drunk and they sleep with him and ended up having babies. Like, that's incest. It, it's, it's detestable. 
it's gross and it's wicked. The people of Moab come from Lot and one of his daughters. And so when they go to Bethlehem, they're going to be like, you're a Moabite? Like, please stay away. Like, you, you don't fit in here. You're not the right type of person to be here. So she's going to be looked down upon. She's going to be frowned upon for the rest of her life if she goes with her, her mother-in-law, Naomi. Well, Naomi basically says, hey, please don't come. Go to your mother's house. Orpah, living up to her awesome name, she does go back to her mother's house. She doesn't stay with Naomi. But Ruth, she ends up telling, and we'll get into it, but she says, where you go, I'll go. She's essentially saying, anything that you choose, I'm going to choose too. I'm going to stay with you. I'm here for the long haul. Your emptiness is my emptiness. Your loss is my loss. Your pain is my pain. The shame that you may feel going back to your people, having lived in Moab for 10 years, that's going to be my shame too. So Ruth, she takes it all on. She reveals that she doesn't care what anyone's going to think about her. She is completely devoted to Naomi, her mother-in-law. And so at this point, Ruth is a really admirable lady because we'll, we'll look and we'll learn that she doesn't really honestly know about, a lot about the God of Israel. It's not like she's like heard a bunch of stories and she's like, yeah, I'm all in on God, big G, right? He's, he's awesome. Basically, all she knows is that apparently God is in charge of famines Uh, He's in charge of this crisis that's happening. But the thing that sticks out to her the most is that out of all of the gods that she has ever served, the God of Israel is the only God that is able to actually exert his will and his plan and his purposes into people's lives. Even though it's a famine, this is the only God she has ever encountered that actually is able to do real things. He's the only one that has an actual plan that she's ever seen. And so she decides to put her faith in him and to go with Naomi and to serve this God in a foreign land where she's going to be a reject. And so in in one sense, Ruth, the foreigner, does exactly what her father-in-law Elimelech didn't do. And it's trust God enough to go to Bethlehem. So in Naomi, she ends up arriving in Bethlehem. She feels empty. Uh, she feels that God is indifferent. And she actually at one point changes her name uh, because she, she decides that Naomi, which means pleasant in Hebrew, is not what describes her at all. Nothing about her life is pleasant. And so she, named, she renames herself Mara, which means bitter. And so essentially by changing her name, she wants everyone to know that everything about her life is bitter. There's nothing good in it. It's awful. And yet Ruth still is by her side. So let's look at this as to why it matters to us. So that's kind of the the overarching story, what's happening. And then there are a lot of things that will pan out from there. But here's what we need to understand. In the midst of this crisis, Naomi isn't questioning the existence of God. So we have to understand that Naomi is never like, you know what, God doesn't exist. He doesn't doesn't care because he's not real. Actually, what she ends up doing is saying, yes, God is actually very real, but he's indifferent to me and my hurt. 
in my pain. Yes, God is real, but he doesn't care. And so I think like Naomi, crisis, suffering, pain, it, it makes us feel different. In those moments, we're not the same person we were when things were all good. You, you understand that, that, that those moments of struggle, our dark places in life, those things affect us to the very core of who we are. We don't leave them unscathed. We don't leave them unchanged. So much so that Naomi is so affected by this suffering that she has to change her name so everyone will know how bad her life is. God has been so indifferent to me that my name is bitter. And she's thinking, I, I can't be Naomi because nothing in my life will ever be pleasant again, ever. Have you ever been in that place where something feels so bad that you just think nothing will ever be good again? There have been moments in my life where I have felt so low that, that I just kind of thought, how will I ever be happy again? How will things ever be good again? How can I move forward past this, right? That's what Naomi is feeling. Those are the types of things that we can feel in this life. She, she feels that God could care less about her pain. And her question is one that resonates with apparently only me. Why did this have to happen to me? Why did this have to happen to me? I'm a child of God. I serve God. I, I've given my life to God. Why did this happen to me? And, and how can this bad thing actually work out for my good? You, you see, when we face crisis, what most naturally happens to us is we begin to have tunnel vision, right? We look at the struggle that's right in front of us and we focus on it. And the next thing you know, it's like we have binoculars on this really bad thing and we can see nothing else happening in our life except the bad thing and all of the outcomes of the bad thing. And it's like, there are five different ways that this can get worse. It can get better in no way. And so this really bad thing all of a sudden becomes to consume my life. And then the next thing I know, I know all of the ways that my life is destroyed and I know that my life will never be the same. I'm bitter. I'll never be pleasant again. And we just focus in on that thing. Even believers can do that. We hone in on the bad thing, the suffering, the crisis, and we can't look away. Right? It's like that, like that analogy of a car crash you can't look away from. Right? Why do people like rubberneck at car crashes? Don't act like you don't do it. Right? Every time there's a car crash, everyone's like, we all know. You want to see for as long as you can what has happened. You don't want anyone to be injured, but you kind of want to know if they are. We, 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 we just get so focused on the car crash in our life. But what happens in that tunnel vision and what the book of Ruth is warning us of and what it's alleviating us of and what it's counseling us against is tunnel vision of the crisis because what we need to do in those moments is we need to take a breath and look up from the crisis and look around to the ways in which God has been faithful and be reminded of the things, the other crises, the other pains, the other sufferings that he has brought us through, our friends through, our family through, people in our lives that we know, and to see that, yes, even in the midst of the most difficult things, even in the midst of our bitterness, God actually is at work, and he has a plan, and it is good. And so the, the reality is, is that 
In the midst of those moments, we have to look up so we don't miss the fact that God is gracious and that He is faithful. And so, just to close, as we study this book, as we go through the book of Ruth, what's going to happen is it will serve to remind us that God works every single day in the ordinary, mundane, basic things of our life. Every day, God is at work. There is absolutely never a moment when his children are alone or forgotten in the midst of their distress. And so one final thing is that as, as we look at this, even as we're looking at Naomi and Ruth and Oprah or Orpah, whatever you want to call her, even in the midst of all of their pain and their hurt and their loss and their distress, the book of Ruth is actually revealing something about us too. We really want Naomi to be rescued. All of us look at Naomi and we're like, man, that's kind of sad for her. I hope things work out. You know, I really hope things work out for Naomi. I hope that she can get to a place where she's no longer bitter, but pleasant again. Why? Because something about human nature wants us to have a resolution to the crisis. Something within us wants a solution to the problem. For Naomi and for Ruth, we want, we want Naomi to be happy again. But for Ruth, we're thinking, man, it'd be cool if she could find a husband. And maybe she could have some children and have a happy family and have, have good memories of her deceased husband. But for all of us, we realize actually that we are in need of rescue too. That there are things in our life, difficulties, sufferings, Maybe it's our family life. Maybe it's our school life. Maybe it's friendships. There are things in our life that we want to be rescued from. But the reality for us is the greatest threat to us is not the things that are happening on this earth one at a time, week by week, day by day. It's the fact that without Jesus, we are actually dead too. We actually need rescuing too. And so while we want a solution for Ruth and Naomi, we should also realize that we are Ruth and Naomi. We need a resolution to the problem that we have. And so what the book of Ruth is going to tell us is that we need not just rescue from suffering, but rescue from eternal sin and eternal punishment of death. And the answer in, the, in, in chapter 4 of Ruth, we're going to get there, is eventually that the answer to that problem is Jesus.